0: well good morning river city it 's good to be with you my name 's brandon i 'm one of the pastors here. If you are new or visiting, especially want to say welcome to you we 're glad that you join us this advent season as we prepare our hearts to celebrate jesus 's first coming and so we 're just glad that you you join us for that and and uh, we 'd love to get to know you we 'd love to help you get plugged into the community here at River City and take a step in either knowing Jesus or growing in your faith wherever you 're at and so Love to get to know you. I would also love to invite you into our, our sermon series. This fall, we've been working through uh, two letters written by the Apostle Paul uh, to a church in the ancient city of Thessalonica. They're known as 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, and just a couple weeks ago, we finished up Paul's first letter to them, and last week, we started the second, and And uh, what we saw last week is that the the central issue that Paul kept addressing and kept coming up in that first letter remains front and center in his second letter to the to to the Thessalonians. And and that theme was simply about how faith in Jesus' return is meant to transform not just the way that we die in the end, but the way that we live now. And so what we believe about Jesus and the way he, and his return is really important. We saw in 1 Thessalonians how Paul was addressing a number of gaps in the Thessalonians' understanding about the nature and the timing of this day that Jesus promised when he was coming back in person to usher in his kingdom and gather his people to himself and deal with evil once and for all and we saw how the the gaps in their understanding about this coming day in 1st Thessalonians had really been a lot just regards to the the natural result that the apostle Paul had been forced by persecution to leave them long before he was kind of finished teaching them everything that he had wanted to about the person and the work of Jesus and 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 what we see is that in the vacuum of kind of Paul's sudden absence from them and in the presence of a bunch of really strong persecution and opposition, a number of them had kind of become plagued by confusion and grief regarding fellow believers who died before Jesus came back or uncertainty and fear about their own status of what would happen when when he returned. And, And so uh, what we saw is that th- those issues were really central to what was going on for them. And and we don't have time to do the deep dive this morning on exactly how Paul addressed all those issues, but the, the big picture summary is that what he basically did is pointed them back to the gospel. He pointed them back to the good news about Jesus' death and his resurrection and how those weren't just past events in his life, but those were the pattern and the proof by which they could expect events to happen in their own lives, right? And that, that the lives of all those who trust, they put their trust in him. And so essentially what he tells them is like, listen guys, you don't have anything to worry about. Like Jesus is not like, he's not worried about death. He's going to deal with that. You don't have to be afraid. And, and you can be filled with hope that sustains your faith and transform your lives because he's already died for you. And he, He's paid the penalty for your sins. You don't have anything to fear. And he's coming back, and you can look, you can have hope about that day because of the gospel. And you'd think that that would have kind of solved the problems about Jesus' second coming in the Thessalonian church. But. What we're going to see this morning is that while a few areas of concern surrounding Jesus' return may have been dealt with in that first letter, there's another area of concern that had arisen in its place. And, and so Paul is kind of stuck playing like a bad end times theology version of whack-a-mole in Thessalonica. He's just like smacking down things that are kind of messed up, right? The difference this time, though, is that while the confusion and the fear about Jesus' return that had plagued this young church, in Paul's first letter, it was a result of just, they didn't know the truth. There were some gaps in their understanding. But the problem we're going to see Paul addressing in the second letter, they're not a result of them not knowing the truth. It's clear that it's a result of them forgetting the truth that they already knew. And in turn, they end up being deceived by false teaching that, that the day of the Lord, that Jesus' return had somehow already happened and that they would missed it. But Paul's not frustrated. He's not exasperated with them. We've seen throughout the letters, he really loves these people. He really cares about them. And so in an effort to, again, replace their anxiety and fear with confidence and hope, he graciously points them back to a number of things he'd already taught them in person and in writing. And he reminds them not only why they can be sure that Jesus' return hasn't happened yet, but why they can be full of confidence and hope instead of anxiety and fear when they think about this this coming day. And and so as we study the way Paul seeks to comfort and encourage their anxious hearts this morning, what I want to show you is that at the heart of the way he comforts them is the idea that, that knowing, remembering, and loving The truth of God's word, knowing, remembering, and loving the truth of God's word will not only enable Christians to stand firm in the midst of this kind of unrestrained chaos in the final days that leads up to Jesus' return, but it's the thing that actually is going to fill us with discernment and hope, right? The discernment and hope we actually need to to fight the power of sin in our lives and in our world today. And so the thing that we're going to need in the end and the thing that we're going to need today is the same thing. It's to remember and know and love the truth of God's word. And so I can't wait to show you that this morning. Uh, I'll shoot straight with you. The passage is a bit of a wild one, right? So you're going to buckle up because this one's going to get interesting, right? And uh, we're, uh, we are certainly going to need God's help. And so let's pray before we dive in and we'll see, uh, we'll see what God's word has in store for us this morning. Lord Jesus, we are grateful for you. We're grateful for your word. We are grateful for our time together to gather and study it. And God, we just wanna come humbly to you this morning, asking that by your spirit and, and in your grace, that you might help us to understand rightly the truth of your word, that we might come not just to know it or remember, but we might come to love the truth of your word. And where there are places where we will be confused and where we will have questions that remain unanswered, God, might the truth that is clear in your word, be good news to our hearts, that settles us. And so uh, we need you this morning, as we always do, we need you. And we pray that you would meet us in our need for you, Jesus, so that we might know and love and follow you more. We pray. Amen. All right, well, this morning we're going to be in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Like I said, it's going to be a wild one, so buckle up, all right? begins this way. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, do not become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by a prophecy or by word of mouth or by a letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in this way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction." And he will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? And now you know what is holding him back, so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so until he's taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus, this is my favorite verse, the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. See, the coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He'll use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie and all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. And they'll perish because they refuse to love the truth and to be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they'll believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because God chose you as first fruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God, our Father, who loved us, And by his grace, gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. Now, uh, the Apostle Peter, uh, in one of his letters, he, he wrote that there are some things in Paul's letters that are hard to understand. And I wouldn't be surprised at all if he wrote that immediately after reading this passage, right? Uh, pretty much every commentator begins their section on these verses with like a some version of, uh, so yeah, we're not really sure about a lot of what's going on in this passage, right? And, and so if you were reading along and you're thinking, I have no idea what any of this is about and I have so many questions, right? well, then you are in good company, right? Conversely, if you're thinking reading that and you're thinking, oh, yeah, I know what that's talking about, you're delusional, right? And so we will have an intervention conversation with you later. We'll deal with that at another time, right? See, the reason why pretty much every wise Christian kind of humbly shrugs their shoulders, uh, not about the passage overall, but about a lot of the details in the passage, is because while this passage, like the rest of the Bible, is certainly written for us, Um, spoiler alert, it wasn't written to you. It was written to the church in Thessalonica like 2,000 years ago. right? And that really makes an especially huge difference here because even though you and I have no idea what Paul is referring to when he talks about the rebellion or the man of lawlessness or whoever or whatever is holding all that stuff back, Paul clearly assumes that the Thessalonians would have had the context to understand what he was talking about because he specifically reminds them that he told them about all this stuff before, right? Verse five, he says, don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? And so a lot of the confusion and a lot of the gaps that we have just essentially come from the fact that we're like reading somebody else's mail, right? And not in like a creepy, illegal kind of way, but just in like a, you don't have all the information kind of way, right? Like you you don't have the context, all the context, right? Not only that, but even if we knew exactly what Paul had taught the Thessalonians previously about these things, it's likely that you and I would probably still have a bunch of questions about the specifics and the details, because the nature of apocalyptic writing throughout the Bible, right, that's like prophetic writing about the future and about the return of Jesus and kind of the end of times, uh, is that its goal isn't usually to describe like the exact Time and events, like it's not the goal, isn't just like give you this roadmap that you can follow and be like, oh, sweet, we know the future, great. Instead, it, apocalyptic literature throughout the Bible it uses pictures and metaphors that are meant to evoke the the kind of gravity and seriousness and tone of the future events in ways that our hearts can sense and feel, even if our minds don't totally understand it. You see, Paul's primary goal here is not predicting the future. His primary goal is to pastor their anxious hearts and to offer them comfort and encouragement about Jesus' return, right? Not to answer every single question that they had or that we have. And all that said here, right? While Paul's words certainly leave us with a lot more questions than answers, Uh, What I hope that you'll come away from our time in this passage seeing is is not only that the things that he is clear about are not only wildly more important than any of the stuff he's not clear about, but that if we will cling to the things he is clear about, the clear truth about Jesus' return in this passage, you and I are going to have all we need to be filled with the kind of hope and comfort and encouragement that Paul intended the Thessalonians to have. And so, yes, there's a lot in here that pretty much everyone has questions about. And no, I will not be answering the vast majority of those questions just because there aren't really good answers anyways, right? But it's okay, because what is clear is the thing that's actually important, right? And so with that in mind, what I want to do this morning is is highlight to you four things that Paul makes really clear in our passage about Jesus' return, right? So four things he is really clear about. Number one, the day of the Lord Jesus, right, his glorious triumphant return has not yet come. Right? The Thessalonians they really wanted to know in their first letter. If you remember back to First Thessalonians in chapter four and five. The Thessalonians, they really wanted to know about the specific times and dates when Jesus would return, and Paul reminds them in that first letter about Jesus' own words, not only that nobody knows, but that it, Jesus' return is going to come kind of like labor pains on a, a pregnant mom, or like a thief in the night, right? That it's going to be imminent and unpredictable. And apparently the Thessalonians had forgotten, uh, they'd really embraced that unpredictable part, Right? But they'd apparently forgotten the part right after that where Paul described how when Jesus comes back, it's going to be this event that literally nobody can miss. And what happens is they're, they're, they're clearly afraid that they'd missed this great and glorious day somehow. And and they were again being plagued by anxiety and fear. Verse 2 notes how they'd been, he says, they'd been unsettled and alarmed. The two verbs are in the original language, they, they communicate this idea of kind of ongoing anxiety and just like, they're just freaked out, right? They're, they're worried and it's not just like a passing thing. It's like this, this anxiousness that's consuming them. And if we're honest, uh, that's pretty understandable, Right? They've been facing ongoing harsh persecution, which Paul clearly says will absolutely be a part of what precedes Jesus' return, not to mention the fact that when you are going through hard things, you are not always thinking the most clearly. Right? You're not always thinking the most rationally. Right, You're kind of in the weeds on hard things, and you're not like, oh, let me, let me just carefully remember all the specific things Paul already taught me. Right, like It's hard to remember the truth when you're in the weeds on stuff. And so Paul writes that to them in verse 2, saying essentially, listen, guys, uh, no matter what you heard, no matter what you read, not only is that completely false, it did not come from us, right? And the reason he says you can be sure it didn't come from them is because it directly contradicts at least two things he'd specifically told them already needed to happen before that day would come, right? He says, "Don't you remember how we talked about these two big things that we're going to have to happen before Jesus comes back?" Verse three: that the day, that this day, His return is not going to come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed. And clearly, none of that's happened yet, because Paul, as Paul notes in verse six, whoever or whatever is holding those things back hasn't been removed yet. And whatever that thing is, the Thessalonians know what it is, right? And so he's like, "So remember how we talked about that." right? You know what that thing is, and that's still here, and these things haven't happened yet. So so guys, like you know that Jesus hasn't come back. You can be sure about that. Now, like I already said, although the Thessalonians probably remembered exactly what Paul was talking about, nobody today really knows for sure exactly what he's referring to here precisely, right? And Christians over the centuries have spent roughly a bajillion hours and a bajillion pages, right, trying to figure out, what exactly the rebellion is, right? Is that a spiritual event? Is it a political event? Is it a war? Is it a revolt? Like, what is going on there, right? And who is the man of lawlessness? Is this Satan himself or a demon or some evil leader or politician? Or, and who or what is holding him back, right? They're just countless trying to figure that out. That. And although it's, not, it's just not possible for us to know precisely, based on what we're taught in this passage or the rest of the Bible, exactly who or what those things are, People have offered endless suggestions and ideas about what they might be, which isn't wrong or bad, uh, because we'll, as we'll see in just a few minutes, there, we do get some clues about what that stuff is. Unfortunately, what you find is that history is littered with a lot of wildly overcompetent people who are just real sure they figured it out, right? Like they, they solved the riddle, right? They, they know what all that stuff is about, right? Just, just take a list. Of, of the ideas that people have been put forth about the kind of obvious identity of this man of lawlessness, for example. And what you're going to see is that people are as equally confident as they are wrong about all these things. right here. The list, one commentator sums it up. It includes a number of Roman emperors, Muhammad, various popes, the papacy itself, Martin Luther, King George II of England, Napoleon Bonaparte, each side of the American Civil War, Kaiser Wilhelm of Germany, the League of Nations, Hitler, Mussolini, Stalin, the United Nations, Khrushchev, the Soviet Union, Gorbachev, Anwar Sadat, the Ayatollah Khomeini, Yasser Arafat, Saddam Hussein, the New Age movement as a whole, henry kissinger and former presidents jimmy carter and ronald reagan just to name a few right those were all suggestions that people are just like we figured it out we're real sure that this is who it's talking about and that should be a warning to you right the fact that jesus has clearly not come back yet (laughs) And so that all those people were real wrong about all the stuff that they were real convinced of, that should be a warning that we should have a tremendous amount of humility when we approach thinking about those things. Right? If you need more reasons to be cautious than this, all of like, the, the history littered with wrong answers, uh, just, just do this. Look at all the prophecies in the New Testament that the New Testament writers say Jesus fulfilled at his first coming, and what you will find is that well, a bunch of them you are like, oh, Bethlehem, cool, I see one-to-one on that, right? A lot of the prophecies you're gonna read and be like, I definitely would not have seen that coming, right? Like that was that was not clear, right? There is no way I would have understood exactly what that was about unless someone explained that to me. You see, but while we don't know exactly what they are, we do have some clues about these things, right? For example, Paul doesn't specify what form this rebellion is going to take, but the the word that he uses for it is in almost every example in the Bible is used to describe spiritual apostasy, right? Namely, uh, Israel's rebellion against God. And so it's likely that whatever form this future rebellion takes, uh, it will infiltrate the church in some way. It's not just the world at large that's going to reject God, but that people who may have claimed to be Christians but who, who actually aren't are going to turn away from God. Additionally, we know that this man of lawlessness, whoever he is, isn't Satan himself. Verse 9 tells us that he'll use the same tactics that Satan does, which is lies and deception, and that he will be imbued with power from him, Right, that he's going to perform kind of miraculous signs and wonders that aren't fakes, but are empowered by Satan himself, but that he's distinct from Satan. He's not the same person. Most commentators associate this man of lawlessness with what the Apostle John refers to as the Antichrist. You may have heard that language thrown around, right? It's this figure who will come at the end of history before Jesus' return and, and will unleash an unprecedented amount of evil and opposition towards God and towards God's people in the world. We're told in verse 4 that this figure will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped. And that he'll set himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. In other words, he's going to oppose all religion. He, not, just, not just Christianity, he's going to oppose all religion and set himself up as God himself. He's going to turn himself in the most blazing and brashly, uh, blasphemous way possible. He's going to turn himself into the object of worship. And this reality is at the heart of the real sinister nature of this figure. He's called the man of lawlessness. And he's not called that because he's going to break a bunch of laws. He's called the man of lawlessness because what he, at the root of what he's going to do is to claim that there is no law in the first place. Right? That no one can tell him what is true and right and good. That he's the arbiter of what is true. That he decides what is right that he is God. And that is at the heart of what sin itself really is. You see, whoever this person of lawlessness ends up being What they will be is the embodiment and the personification of sin and rebellion itself. See, at the root of sin is not bad behavior. At the root of sin is rebellion against God. It's the idea that we have rejected God's good rule and authority in our lives, and we have enthroned ourselves as the kings and queens, as the arbiters of what is true and right and good, that nobody gets to tell us the way we should live or what we should do or what is right. We get to decide. And while you and I might not claim to be God, we act as though we functionally are all God all the time, as though our opinions are the truth, our views are the facts, our judgments should be the final authority. And that leads us to the second thing that Paul makes clear in the passage. Although this lawless one is yet to be revealed, the lawlessness that he embodies is already among us. Verse 7, Paul says it this way, the secret power of lawlessness is already at work. See, the desire not to break laws, but to reject them altogether, to, to call into question the, the reality of absolute truth or ultimate morality or final justice, That the idea to reject those things, if you haven't seen it already, that is alive and well in our world right now. One commentator summed it up this way. He says, we detect this subversive influence of lawlessness all around us today It's in the atheistic stance of secular humanism, in the totalitarian tendencies of extreme left and right-wing ideologies. It's in the materialism of consumer society which puts things in the place of God, in those so-called theologies which proclaim the death of God and the end of moral absolutes, and the social permissiveness which cheapens the sanctity of human life and sex and marriage and family, all of which God created and instituted. You see, whoever this man of lawlessness is, all he's going to do is to intensify and exasperate the power of lawlessness that is already at work all around us. And what that means for us is that the thing that we need to be primarily concerned about is not figuring out who he is or when he's coming or the times and dates but is to learn how to identify and defend ourselves against the power that he will wield that he will unleash while it is still being restrained See, and that leads us to the third thing paul makes clear in our passage See, the way that you learn to identify and to reject the deceptive lies of the power of lawlessness at work in our world today and the way that Christians are gonna be able to stand firm against the person of lawlessness in those last and final days is by knowing and remembering and loving the truth of God's word. Verse 15, he says it this way, so then brothers and sisters, stand firm. And hold fast to the teachings that we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. You see, throughout the passage and throughout his letters to this young church as a whole, Paul has been reminding the Thessalonians about the truth that he has already passed on to them, right? It's not his truth, it's truth from Jesus, which he has passed on to them. In his person and in his writing, the truth about who God is and who they are, the truth about the good news of of the gospel and the person and the work of Jesus, the, the, the hope that they have for his return that's rooted in his substitutionary death and his victorious resurrection from the dead. And Paul tells them here, the way that you stand firm in the midst of whatever chaos is around you now or will be in front of you in the future is by clinging to the One commentator put it this way, see, to cling to the truth is to remain uncompromisingly loyal to the teaching of Christ and that of his apostles. The only way to resist false teaching is by clinging to the truth. And to cling to the truth, you have to know it. You have to know the truth first. You have to know the truth about who God is and what he is like as revealed in the person of Jesus. But it's not just enough to know it. You have to remember it. Right? Paul invites the Thessalonians throughout the passage. He says, guys, don't you remember what? We, we talked about all these things already. It's really important that you remember that. And this is the problem for the Thessalonians. They knew the truth, but they had forgotten the truth that they knew. And chaos often does that to us. And that's why we've got to work hard on being prepared and on filling our minds with the truth, not when chaos begins, but before it comes. Right? Why do you think fighter pilots or race car drivers spend so much time practicing and being in simulators and, and rehearsing over and over and over again, why? Because when you are in a dogfight or when your back end of your car is starting to slide out around turn three, right? You don't have time to look at the manual. You have to know what to do. It has to be natural. It has to be an instinct. You have to remember what you already know. See, the same is true for following Jesus and fighting lawlessness, We have to prepare ourselves for the battles that are ahead and we do that by reading God's word, by studying it, by memorizing it and by asking God by his spirit to bring it to our minds when we are facing temptation and trials and lies. And we don't practice in times of peace. We won't be ready for the battles which are invariably ahead of us. See, but we don't just need to know and remember the truth of God's word if we want to be able to withstand the power and the person of lawlessness. You see, Paul says we need to love the truth of God's word. You see, the difference between those who will be able to withstand both the power and the person of lawlessness and those who are led astray by its lies and are condemned in the end is not that they one knows the truth and the other doesn't. Paul says in verse 10 that those who are perishing now and will be contemned in the end is because they refused to love the truth. See, it's one thing to know the truth. It is another thing entirely to love the truth. So you can be sure that Satan knows the Bible a lot better than you do. He's had a lot more years, right? Like he, he knows it way better than you do, but he does not love the truth of God's word. See, you can't love the truth if you don't know it and if you don't remember it, but knowing and remembering the truth does not cause you to love it. See, Paul says that God's the one who does that. He's the one who causes you to love the truth, to know it, believe it, and love it. He says in verse 13 and 14, brothers and sisters, God loved you. He chose you to be saved He called you to believe the truth of the gospel. He set you apart by his spirit so that you would shine and see the glory of Christ when he returns. See, and that brings us to the last thing that Paul makes clear in our passage this morning. See, although you and I do not know the times and dates and details about all these things, God absolutely does. Right? And not only that, he is sovereignly ruling and reigning over everything. See, the absolute, unchallenged, sovereign rule of God, his authority, it radiates throughout every verse in this passage. He is sovereign to save sinners, to call them to see and believe and love and stand firm in the truth of his word in the midst of all kinds of chaos and deception. And his sovereign power and authority is at work even now, bending every second of history to his perfect will and his good purposes. The rebellion, the man of lawlessness, they are not only being held back by whatever God is using to restrain them, they are being held back until the point that He's decided that they should be revealed. right? One comment here put it this way, the restrainer does precisely what God intends for him or it, whatever to do, and for as long as God intends for them to do it, nothing takes place now or ever outside the providence of God. And when the time does come for those things to be revealed, Jesus, defeats them by just showing up and breathing. Right? Like this it's not this picture of this like immense battle, It's right? It's like it's not a it's not like a Marvel Endgame's ultimate war, right? Like Jesus just shows up and then the battle's over, right? No matter how terrible the man of lawlessness is, no matter how great the un, the evil that he unleashes will be. He's already doomed to destruction. Before Paul tells you anything about who he is or what he's going to do, he says this will be revealed. P.S., he's already doomed to destruction. Let's talk about it more, right? I love how one commentator put it. The Lord will destroy him with overwhelming ease when he comes again. It's just like this immense evil will be squashed like a little ant that just has absolutely no power to do anything about it. It's not a fight. It's not a problem. Jesus just shows up, and it's done. You see, the overwhelming, unchallenged, unrivaled sovereignty of God, it is the source of the comfort that Paul wants to offer these anxious Thessalonians. One of my seminary professors summed it up this way. He said, in all of the distressing events that befall the church, God is sovereign. He is all-powerful. Even when things seem at their worst, Jesus will appear and effortlessly bring them to nothing. And our sovereign and all-powerful God is also gracious. He has set his saving love upon his people. He has called us through the gospel to obtain the glory of Christ and to share in it because he holds us firm in the grip of his grace. We may stand firm and hold to the word of God that he has given us through his apostles. You see, the good news of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 is that the true sovereign king and creator of the universe is on his throne, and those who trust and love him and the truth of his word are safe in his hands. Paul says, Thessalonians, you don't need to be afraid. The king is on the throne and no matter what evil is unleashed before his great return, it will not stop him. You are safe with him. See, what we're doing every week when we celebrate communion together, is we're remembering all this sovereign and gracious God has already done for us reminding ourselves about who he is and what he has done. And so communion doesn't make you right with God and it doesn't save you. It doesn't change your status or your standing with him on this day or any other day. Instead, it's an opportunity for us to remember that his body and his blood were broken and shed so that you and I might be filled with faith in him and love for him and hope about his return until he comes. And so if you put your trust in Jesus or you do for the first time this morning, then turn our time of worship, go back and take communion and dip the bread in the juice as a reminder of all that the sovereign, gracious King has done for you. But if you're here this morning and you haven't yet placed your faith in Jesus, maybe you're figuring out who he is or if the truth that he offers really is the truth, then I want you to know you are welcome here. But hold off on taking communion. Because God is not after religious rituals and he is not after going through the motions. He's after a heart that trusts and surrenders to his sovereignty completely. And so communion might not be right for you, but Jesus is. Ask him to reveal himself to you. Wherever you're at this morning, I want to encourage you as we take communion, as we sing, as we remember the gospel together, talk to God. Do you know the truth? Are you putting practices into place in your life to help you remember the truth when chaos is all around you? But most importantly, do you love the truth of God's word? One of the ways that you know if you love the truth of God's word and that you see it for what it is without it crushing you. You see, if you look at the truth of God's word and your first instinct is to try to change it or try to push back from it or try to kind of find a way around it or just to reject it altogether, then then you might know the truth, but you certainly do not love the truth. See, when you love the truth, it shines light into the dark areas of your heart, but it doesn't do it like this searchlight that just blinds you and shocks you. It does it like this surgical light that God uses to shine into the cancerous areas of your heart that he is at work renewing and restoring and healing. And to love the truth is to understand that even if the work he is doing hurts, even if it's costly, you know it is for your good and you know you can trust him in it. See, you're going to need to know and remember and love the truth. Because here's the reality. Something is going to shake you. Something is going to unsettle and alarm you. And it's probably not going to be that you think the day of the Lord already came and you missed it. Right? That's probably, I'm guessing, not many of you are worried about that specific issue right now this morning but something has or will come that shakes you. And maybe it's fear about finances and how you're going to make ends meet, or maybe it's a crack in kind of the armor of your physical health, or maybe it's just a fear about the future in general. And it is normal and healthy to have kind of a healthy amount of concern about your finances or your health or the future. But to become shaken and alarmed by those things is a result of disregarding the word of God altogether. And so being shaken about whatever it is is a real problem. Whether it's about Jesus' return or about something else, because what happens is not just that it produces fear and worry and anxiety and doubt in your heart that distracts you from being and doing what God has called you to be and do, but because it is going to harm your witness and your ability to call others to know and remember and love the truth. Our world is full of a bunch of suggestions for what you can do to have temporary hope and temporal encouragement. We're not short on suggestions. What our world is longing for is an unshakable kind of hope, an eternal kind of encouragement, which is why verse 8 is so important for us to treasure. At the end of all things, it's going to get pretty chaotic there will be a whole lot of evil, far more than there is even now. But when Jesus shows up, nothing opposed to him will stand. One commentator put it this way, verse eight comes crashing into our anxious hearts. It offers a quietness to our restless souls in reminding us that no matter what we are fearing, no matter what it is that's on the horizon that we feel like we cannot face, no matter how crazy and chaotic things get, and they seem like they will get pretty crazy at some point, one day Jesus is going to return in glory, and he will win, and you can rest in that fact. And so resting in the truth of his promised victory over the person of lawlessness on that final day is what enables us to identify and to fight that secret power of lawlessness in our hearts and in our world that is at work already. To identify the lies, the mutinous rebellion in every one of our hearts that seeks to dethrone God and enthrone ourselves to ask God by his spirit to help us to see it, to reject it as we know and remember and love the truth so that we might worship the true king, not the counterfeit prince that will come in his name falsely and that we might enjoy and treasure him both now and forever. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful for you. And it is easy to read a passage like this and to be caught up in all our questions about the things that we don't know. But God, my prayer this morning is that you might empower us by your spirit to be full of confidence and hope that comes from the things that we do know clearly. That you are the great sovereign king of the universe that your plans and purposes are coming along according to your will and your time and we do not have to worry. God, that we are safe with you, not because we are strong, but because you are. And our hope is not in our ability to win some battles in the end, but is in your splendorous and glorious return winning that battle without us even lifting a finger. And so, Jesus, we are grateful for you. Help us to be captivated by you, the great King, our Christ and our Savior, not the Antichrist who distracts us from you. Help us to be captivated by you so that we will know and love and remember your word and be faithful to you both now and forever, we pray. Amen.